This morning's Old Testament reading is in Isaiah chapter 26. And in this chapter, Isaiah incites us to confidence in the Lord for all of his righteous works. The Lord Jehovah is the rock of ages, in verse 4. In him we need not fear. In him is all our hope. Therefore, we must trust him in every situation. It is only when our mind and thoughts are propped up upon the Lord, thinking of him, that we will experience peace regardless of circumstances. We also see in verse 19 brings into resurrection, which is Pastor Ben is going to be preaching on today. It said the resurrection of the dead is a strange doctrine to this world, but it is the center of the Christian hope. Christ's resurrection raises his elect spiritually to a living hope and will raise them one day to physical glory and immortality. We read, I'm going to be reading out of the King James, so it may sound a little different. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 26. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. For he bringeth down them that dwell on high the lofty city. He layeth it low. He layeth it low even to the ground. He bringeth it even to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is upright, is upright, is uprightness. Thou most upright dost weigh the path of the just. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will, but they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. Lord, <clears throat> thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou also hast wrought all our words in us. All, <clears throat> excuse me. For thou also hast wrought all our works in us. 
O Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them, and made all their memory to perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble have thou visited thee. Thou poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, as it were, brought forth wind, we have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut the doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be Overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth shall also disclose her blood and shall no more cover the slain. New Testament reading is in Luke chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 38 through 42. In these verses, we'll see that Martha's problem was not that she was serving. It was that she was distracted by much serving. Verse 40. It is not only bad things that keep us from true communion with Christ. It is often an excessive preoccupation, anxiety, and distractedness with good things. In verse 42, we read, one thing is needful. Though loving and serving others is a crucial part of doing God's will, as the parable of the Good Samaritan declares, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord. Verse 27, and service to others must not distract from communion with him through his word. Verse 39. So we'll begin reading Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And and she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was succumbed. I'm sorry, but Martha was cumbered 
about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Amen. Turning your Bibles to the 10th chapter. See the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. I have often noted, and it's been noted by many people far smarter than I am, that it appears as though God John's Gospel was written last. And not only last, but likely decades after the other Gospels were written. Uh, It's also been noted that it is organized not in chronological order, but around certain significant events. Uh, Jesus Christ clearly did many things, more than could be written in all the books ever written, John tells us. He performed a lot of miracles. John includes seven. Seven significant miracles, each with a particular message. And perhaps that would be a good study for you or for me at some future time. It also includes a series of I am statements. Those I am statements relate all the way back to Moses standing before the burning bush in Genesis 3. Moses, you know, he's been told by God, you need to go back to Egypt now and deliver my people. I got a message for you to give to Pharaoh and to give to the my people there. So Moses asked the sort of thing we would ask, I assume, uh, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they're going to ask, well, what's his name? Perfectly reasonable. So what shall I say to them? If they ask, what's his name, what shall I say to your people? And the Lord told Moses from the bush, say to them, I am who I am. Just tell them, I am sent me. And now we have Jesus in the Gospel of John repeatedly introducing himself with I am statements. We've looked at this on successive first Sundays. In John 6, by the Sea of Galilee, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the fulfillment of that manna that sustained you in the wilderness. And of course, he's going to take that same picture and speak about the bread at the Last Supper that we are going to participate and partake of at the end of this service. In Jerusalem, in John 9, he said, I am the light of the world. I am the fulfillment of that that cloud, that pillar of fire, that pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel through that wilderness that should be leading us through what John Bunyan called the wilderness of this world. In John 10, he's not only the door to the sheephold, he is the great and good shepherd. The fulfillment, not only is he the prophet, the greater than Moses that was prophesied, 
but he's also in the direct Davidic line. And he sent to shepherd God's flock. Now, he's not in Jerusalem. He's not crossed the Sea of Galilee somewhere. He's actually beyond Jordan, which means all the way down to Jericho, across the, across the Jordan River, he's over there. Kind of where John the Baptist was. He's probably in pretty close to the same area. The conversations that we'll be looking at don't occur there for the most part. They occur in Bethany. We'll get to Bethany in a few moments. But in verse 25 of this particular chapter, verse chapter 11, Jesus is going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, Brother Marlin has introduced us to a bit of the context for this particular passage. He's told us that somewhere there's a little village. And in that little village, which we later learn to be Bethany, and I probably should point out, it's, a, it's about a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. In that little village lived two sisters. Their names are Mary and Martha. And Brother Martin, Brother Marlin told us about that. But now we're going to find there's also a brother living there with them. His name is Lazarus. And everybody knows this story. So we can, I don't have to fill in a whole lot of details there. Uh, he really is the center of things if you, if you don't think Jesus is. And of course, he always is. But I want to focus a bit on that sister, on Martha. The level of her faith and draw your attention to it this morning. And the first thing I think is important that we look at before we dive into the text is how personal this passage is. Remember, when Jesus sets down his public ministry in John, he goes to the wedding at Cana and performs one of those significant miracles. Whose wedding was it? Who was the bride? Who was the groom? How was he related to any of them? What was he doing there? What was his mom doing there? We have no idea. Remember that Samaritan woman whom he healed? Remember that official from Capernaum who was concerned about his son and the son got healed? What were their names? We have no idea. What was the name of the man that was born lame and was lame for 38 years? For that matter, what was the name of the woman caught in adultery that they wanted to stone to death? You know, up to this point, the only name we know about is Nicodemus. Wonder why Nicodemus is named. He's named because he was the the teacher of Israel. He's what Paul aspired to be when he was Saul of Tarsus. A ruler of the Jews. And his interaction with Jesus, because of his position as the religious authority is what makes that encounter so particularly significant. So it's important we note how unusual it is that suddenly we start getting names. We'll find out this is is an important connection. And it's also something that would be well known to those people that John is writing to. If you'll recall the 15th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about appearances of Jesus. 
And he mentions the fact that one of his post-crucifixion and resurrection appearances was on a mountain in Galilee, and 500 people who knew him before saw him there, and he just has a throwaway line. He says, you know, a lot of them are still alive. Clearly, he means, if you doubt he rose from dead, just go talk to the people that were eyewitnesses and saw him. Now, I suspect this little family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, people know that family or knew that family or know people that knew that family. Let's pray. Father and our God, we thank you for the continuing testimonies of, of our great God, the I Am Himself, the self-existent God. Father, we thank you for the living reality of the Word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us and gave himself for us willingly to reconcile us to himself, to God the Father, to our Creator who created us for his glory. And Lord, the sins that we willingly commit, those we commit by omission and commission, Lord, there's, they're a debt we could not pay. But the Lord God sent his Son to pay that debt. And we hear today the words of his son, that he is the resurrection and the life. Enlighten our spiritual understanding to the significance of such truths. Build us up in our faith and draw others to the faith for the extension of your kingdom and the glory of your name. It is in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we ask these things. Amen. Now, I said this was in... Be a place beyond the Jordan. That's in chapter 10, uh, verse 40. That's where Jesus is when word gets to him about Nazareth. But let's look in chapter 11, verse 1. There's a certain man in Ezekiel, and now we know the man's name is Lazarus, and he lives in a little village called Bethany. And that, oh, guess what? That's the village that Mary and Martha live in, which, of course, we've already heard about. Uh, it was, and, and then John just throws out this, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. You know, if you're reading through John, you haven't come to that yet. You're not going to get to that till after this in John. So, you know, he, he is human, but this is the Spirit of God working. We just want to make sure everybody understands who this Mary is. And now we've got the Mary and the Martha and Lazarus there as well. And their brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters, plural, sent word to Jesus. Now, as I say, if you're in Jerusalem or just outside Jerusalem, that means somebody has to go down about 3,000 feet in sea level to Jericho, cross over the Jordan River, and then find Jesus on the other side. So that's going to take a little bit of time. They sent to Jesus and said, Take this message, Lord he whom you love is ill. Now think about that message. I mean, everybody thinks everybody else loves them. All right? There's a lot more here than that. Uh, we, we've spent time with you. We've eaten meals with you. We, we know what you think of us, and you certainly know what we think of you. He whom you love is ill. Well, how's Jesus received that? Verse 4, Jesus heard it and said, okay, this illness is not going to lead to death. Now, he didn't say it that way, but that's the way people perhaps heard it. Okay, he's, he's ill, but he's not going to die from it. 
Then he explains what he meant. This illness is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God can be glorified through this illness. Now that, that's okay. Now we know what's going to happen to that. We know he's going to die. And now we're finding out the fact he's ill and perhaps suffering and groaning and literally going to die. That's purposeful for the glory of God. And if it's for the glory of God and the Son of Son of God is going to be glorified through it. Then the Son of God is God as well. God gets the glory. But then we're told, this gets really personal in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha. And he loved her sister. That'd be Mary. And he loved Lazarus. Now, we all know God loves the world. That's why he sent his only begotten son. But now we're hearing that only begotten son actually loved these individual, specific people. Incidentally, in chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus says about certain people, you know, you don't love me. If you knew the father, you'd love me. You're claiming Abraham's your father. You're wondering how I'm doing all these miracles. You're, You're putting your trust in Abraham. Listen, if you love the God of Abraham, you'd love me, is what he's saying. Well, he loves these individuals. And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, here's his reaction. Get us a horse and chariot. We got to get there as quickly as possible. No. He said, well, let's just hang around here a couple of days. And they stayed in that place for two days. Now, there's already been an encounter like this back in chapter 9 when the, when the blind man was there. And the disciples turned and said, hey, who made this? Who sinned here? Did this man or his parents sin? And the answer that Jesus gave the disciples, this man didn't sin and his parents didn't sin either. This, this blindness is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he did the work of God, which of course gave him his sight and created that great big Controversy in chapter 9 and chapter 10. So what does it mean that afflictions that are common to man, like being born with RTS, or having the sort of issues that Grayson's dealing with because he's born with RTS, or the fact that somebody is gravely ill and may not make it, why are they there? This text would tell us they are there that God would receive the glory. The same reason you were created is that God would receive the glory. The reason you've given life is that God may receive the glory. The the, the reason that ultimately you're going to go through hard times and hard places and perhaps excruciatingly painful situations is that God would receive the glory. Now, this is not an easy truth to get a hold of. Here's a man who's ill and dying. And we know he's dying because he's going to die. His sisters are very concerned for him. They send word to Jesus and Jesus tarries, good King James word, two days before going anywhere. But after that, verse 7 tells us, tells the disciples, okay, let's go back, to, let's go back into Judea. The disciples say, listen, the Jews there, they were looking to stone you. You sure you want to do this? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And he says, listen, I'm the light of the world. 
And in the daytime, the light shines, and I have to shine. What what he's really saying is, there will come a time where they may be able to inflict real harm on me. But it's not now. Interesting response to that is his disciples say, he says, listen, he says, he's telling them, Lazarus, is he's, he's ill, he's fallen asleep now. I'm just going to go wake him up. And they say, well, look, if he's asleep, he'll wake up on his own sooner or later. He says, no, I'm talking about he's dead. Suddenly it got very, very serious. It got very, very serious. Jesus told them plainly, he's died. Now that's the human perspective. If you were there, you would look at him, you would lift him up, you'd wrap him up, you'd take him to the tomb. That, he's dead. And then Jesus says in verse 15, for your sake, and the ones he's talking to, and now us that he's talking through them, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. As we'll hear, at least two individuals say, and they're absolutely right, I suppose, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Now Jesus is saying, he's dead, and I'm glad I wasn't there. Put those two things together. What does that say about things that just go on and on and on in people's lives? He says, I'm glad I wasn't there, verse 15, so that you may believe. Whereas that trial that Mary and Martha and Lazarus in particular are going through had a purpose beyond them to his disciples that were with him. So one of the disciples says, okay, we might as well go along and die with him. Now that's doubting Thomas, by the way. Uh, At least he's willing to go along and and perish. Now when Jesus came in verse 17, Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. If he's been in the tomb four days, when did he die? Four days ago. One thing that happens in, in, in climates not like our own, in civilizations not like our own, certainly in the Middle East today, if you die today, you're in the tomb. I mean, they don't, the kind of autopsies and stuff we do in the West, and what was he, what happened to him? How did it? You know, you're wrapped up. You're in the tomb, which means something. Jesus it took a day to get word to Jesus. He tarried two days. It took a day to get back up there. He's been in the tomb four days, which means he probably died almost as soon as the messengers left. He's been dead all that time, and Jesus knew it. And Jesus arrived when he's already been in the tomb for four days. It's as though he tarried there planning for this to be an important point. And it is an important point because if you think about it, other people have been raised from the dead. I mean, Elijah raised the, uh, the, the widow's son. I think it was the widow of Zarephath's son. Uh, the, the Shunammite woman's son was raised from the dead by Elisha. Uh, Jesus raised the, the, the widow's, the widow of Nain's son. He was being carried to the tomb. Well, all those people, they died that day and they got raised that day. But this individual, Lazarus, he's been dead four days. Now we'll get to the point here where your sister's saying, You know, I don't think you want to open that tomb because it's been four days and it's going to smell. 
See, this is a whole different situation. It's going to really take something special here. Isn't it amazing that we, we, can, we can dig down and think through things at that level and realize there's a lot more going here than just a, a cursory passing over. Well, we read in verse 18 that Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. Now, I said it was a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. Doesn't two miles seem like a long way to be a Sabbath day's journey? Let me tell you how this worked in first century Judaism. Moses in Exodus 16 said on the Sabbath day, stay in your place. Don't go anywhere. Well, they got to thinking about this by the days of Joshua. The tabernacle's here, but the camp's a really big camp. We're spread all over the place here. You might have to walk a long way to get the tabernacle on the Sabbath. So let's start doing some calculating. If you came from the furthest part of the camp and got to the tabernacle, you'd probably walk about 2,000 cubits. So I think a Sabbath day's journey is about 2,000 cubits. That's about, let's say, 3,000 feet. You're still under a mile. But then a little later, the rabbis got to looking and thinking and calculating and things like this and said, you know, in your place means in your place. That means in your city or in your village. So you probably shouldn't even start counting until you hit the city limit. So now you can go 2,000 meters beyond the city limit. Okay, so now now we're getting on up there a little further. Not two miles, maybe a mile. But what if, and this came along in Jesus' day, what if you stayed some food at some time at that limit? Now that's your place. And when you get there, you've got more space. So you can go that far again. Therefore, though it's two miles away, it's well within a Sabbath day's journey. Lord already knows what a Sabbath day's journey is today. Uh, you say, well, how peculiar those Jews were. Think about some of the things we think this is the way Christians do. And wonder how we got so ludicrously out of bounds of the scripture to get there. This, this happens all the time. So in any case, because Bethany is very near, only two miles off, verse 19 tells us, many of the Jews went over to Mary and Martha's house. They're there to console her concerning her brother, Lazarus. This means this is a very well-known family. People think a lot of them. Well, when Mary hears, I'm sorry, Martha hears in verse 20, Jesus coming, she immediately goes to meet him. Now, is, is this the same Martha that was just too busy to listen to him? Well, now a real problem has developed, and she is running to meet him. Mary, of course, isn't running anywhere. She's still staying in the house and grieving. And all that means is what it says. And I emphasize that because I once heard a sermon in which, in which the pastor said she didn't go anywhere and Jesus couldn't move either until she showed some faith. Now, that's about as Arminian as you could get. Uh, but we were in kind of a fundamentalist Arminian situation then and it made sense to me. It doesn't anymore. Mary's, they're grieving. Martha's going to Jesus. Verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now that's certainly, I mean, miracles like that came easy to him. 
Easy for her to believe. If you'd just been here, he wouldn't have died. But then she says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, apparently she's been listening to a lot of things he said. Maybe she was being busy and thought she was getting too much of the work she had to do. But she's heard a lot of things. And I know if I know you've got access to God. If you ask him for things, he'll give them to you. And Jesus' response to her is it? Your brother will rise again. Now, how comforting would that be to you? Yeah, I mean, if he said, I'm going to go in there and raise him from the dead, that would be pretty comforting. But if he said, your brother will rise again. And incidentally, when you stand before somebody's tomb or a loved one passes away, that's the message you have. That's as good as it gets. Your brother will rise again. Then let's see where this goes. Martha, remember we're looking at, at her specifically. Martha said, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last days. See, she does know some Bible, Old Testament, and she believes what she knows. And the Old Testament repeatedly speaks of a general resurrection, a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. It's, it's Brother Marlin read to us, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Uh, Daniel speaks of a day in which the great priest Michael, in charge of his people, there'll be a time of trouble. It'll be a terrible time. But the people will be delivered. Everybody whose names written in the book will be delivered. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some will awake to everlasting life. Some will awake to everlasting judgment. Even old Job, in the midst of all the terrible things he was going through, said in Job 19.26, after my skin has been destroyed, after the worms have eaten me, means, yet in my flesh I'll see God. I'll see him for myself. My eyes will behold him. After my flesh is destroyed by worms, my eyes will behold him. And I won't be looking at another. I'll be seeing the Lord. Jesus' response to her when she says, yes, I, I understand. Everybody's going to be raised. There will be a final raising. Jesus says, and this is our verse today. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on to explain that. That, he's saying, that resurrection you're counting on, I am that. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So you're absolutely right, and you have every reason for hope, Martha. But you really don't understand who's standing in front of you now. I am the, I'm not, I am the personification, I am the actuality of that. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. And then he asked, do you believe this? And perhaps he said it this way, Martha, do you believe this? Or perhaps I should say this without calling anybody's name. Do you believe this? Because this is who he says he is. She says, she responds, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you, Standing right in front of her. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. 
who's coming in the world. I believe, Jesus, that you are, you are pre-existent. You were here before there was anything. I believe that you're the one we've been expecting from, from ages past. I believe that you are a direct descendant from David. And I believe that you are uniquely the Son of God. And what does all that mean? What does all that mean in light of the fact when we get to verse 39, she's going to say, you better not move that stone because it's been four days and that's going to be a mess. It's going to be, it's going to stink. Believing in Jesus is the means by which people are joined to the resurrection life that he personifies. To believe in Jesus is to be connected to the life that absolutely guarantees resurrection. To believe in Jesus means you are united, you are in Christ, to the one who has life in himself. Death cannot hold him. Those who believe in Jesus may actually experience, and most of us will, physical death. But it won't be permanent. Death will not be able to hold us either. And we will never undergo the second death, which is after that great white throne judgment, which is separation from God for all eternity. That's what Jesus means when he says those who believe in him will never die. Now, when she said this, she runs and tells Mary, he's here, he's here. And he's calling for you. We don't have that part of the conversation. She jumps up and runs to where he is. Of course, he's still right where he was when Mary, when Martha left him. That was the point of that pastor's message. He's there because now she's showing faith. He can move. It doesn't make sense to me now, but it made perfect sense then. Because, you know, you activate everything by your own will, and then God responds. If you believe that, if that troubles you to hear me say it the other way, we need to talk. God is sovereign. We're not sovereign. Well, of course, when she's running to meet him, verse 31 tells us the Jews were with her in the house. They're there to console her. They, they see her jump and run. They, oh, they jump and run too. Now they think she's going to the tomb and they expect there'll be a lot of weeping and wailing and that, you know, that sort of thing. And they're kind of there for part of that too. And they're there to console her. So they go with her. When she runs up to Jesus in verse 32, she says, Basically, exactly the same thing Martha said. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now look at verse 33 through 35. Jesus sees her weeping. Jesus sees the Jews that came with her weeping. And in response to her weeping and them weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. How does that strike you? Does Jesus care? Is Je- does Jesus really care about what you're going through? He was greatly troubled. We're talking about the word that was with God and that was God and through whom everything was created and nothing that was created wasn't created through that word. He saw them weeping and he was moved and disturbed in his spirit. This this is this is an individual that can be touched with your infirmities. 
They can be touched with the struggles that you're going through personally. They can be affected personally by it. I'm not saying he changes. It's a whole different issue. But I'm saying he's affected. Yes, where have you laid him? And they say, come see. And then we see the Son of God, the Word Himself, weeping. Everybody's favorite memorized Bible verse, Jesus wept. But He did weep. He's grieving. Now He knows how this is going to end. But the, the emotional impact that those who loved Lazarus are going, what they're going through is impacting Him and He's weeping. And note, the onlookers seeing this say that weeping demonstrates how much he loved him. Well, that may or may not, as we all understand how weeping works, weeping and mourning. There'd be a lot of reasons why people be and some are just in sympathy. But they interpret it that way and we'll just got to leave it there. But then they say, you know, couldn't he have got here and kept him dying? So you kind of realize at least some of their hearts aren't exactly in the right place. But he's moved again. Verse 38, he comes to the tomb. There's a cave. There's a stone in front of the way. He says, take it away. And Martha says, it's been four days. You don't want to do that. And Jesus says, and he's saying this to you. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And we, we, that's a word you need. And if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Now, they take away the stone. Jesus lifts up his eyes. He says, Father, listen to this prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you that you heard my prayer. But then he says, I know you always hear me. I'm only saying this out loud so the people that are hearing me pray will hear me say it. And if they hear it and they believe it's really going on, they'll believe that you sent me. That's really a beautiful, beautiful statement for him to make. So then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Kind of stuck with the King James Act. Come out of there. Come out of there. And look how verse 44 states it. The man who had died came out. Not a different individual. Not a glorified individual. Not a spiritual being that just floated out there like Casper. The man who had died came out. You might say, well, how did he come out? Because it also tells us his hands and feet are wrapped up in linen strips. He can't, he's not self, he can't move himself. His face is wrapped in a cloth. Jesus has to tell them, unwrap him. Yet he came out. Now, he is the man that was buried. He didn't come out under his own motivation. He came out because of the declaration of the Son of God, come out. The Word spoke and creation responded. He was not limited by gravity. One kind of wonders whether they even had to move the stone. Well, they moved the stone so you could see him come out. Now, obviously something phenomenal has happened. And verse 45 tells us many of the Jews who'd come with Mary and they'd seen what he did, believed in him. 
Now, I can't imagine if you weren't there and you'd see you wouldn't either. And I'm reasonably certain the vast majority of you, if you had been there and you had seen it, you would have believed him, believed in him. But there were people there who saw and heard all of that and did not believe him. I mean, think about that. They, they saw and heard it all. They didn't have an explanation for it, but they did not want to believe what they had just seen and heard. It couldn't be that. We live in a world today in which all kinds of people are not believing in things that are right in front of their eyes. It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. You've got your whole new set of things. You don't believe it even though you're looking right at it. So, jumping all the way down to verse 53, they went and told some people, and from that they all, they made plans, we're going to have to kill this guy. They've been opposed to Jesus all along. But now they're actively making plans to put him to death. Now jump just a little bit into chapter 12. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's six days before the Passover, and he is going to be the Passover lamb this time through. The time has come. The hour has arrived. Jesus is in Bethany. This is the Bethany where Lazarus was. Oh, by the way, John says, that's the Lazarus who he raised from the dead. See, we're just connecting the dots here. And they had dinner for him. And Martha's serving the dinner. And Lazarus is there reclining at the table, eating the meal with them. I mean, this, this is so personal. And Mary, this is where Mary takes that point, pound of ointment, and basically anoints him for his death, for the grave. This is the place where Judas Iscariot decides, that's, that's wasting the money I intended to steal. And basically runs off and betrays him. We read in verse 9, that when the large crowd of the Jews who were there in Bethany and been in Jerusalem and knew about the Lazarus story, when they heard Jesus was there, they came on account of him, on account of Lazarus, because they knew this was a phenomenal individual. And how did the religious leadership of the day respond to that? In verse 10, the chief priest made plans, we're going to kill Lazarus too. Now we know we had to kill that Jesus guy. But Lazarus' testimony of being alive when everybody knew he was dead for four days is such that we have to kill him too. That's the world's response. And this, this incident, this is why you can present the gospel in the kindest, gentlest, clearest, most caring way with a broken heart. And someone will hear and nod their head and it won't doubt your, won't doubt your faith. And they'll think you're a fool. We're entering into a, into a election year, into a season in which Christianity is going to be sorely tested. In, in which the Christian faith is going to be used by both sides to assault the other. In a society that doesn't have faith in anything except itself. It's not going to be an easy thing to be a Christian. 
But that's what we're called to be. And the great and glorious thing is this one who is the light of the world, who is our shepherd, is also the resurrection and the life. And our belief in him assures us of eternal life. In fact, Jesus defines eternal life. He says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What a great and glorious thing it is to be a Christian. Now he has demonstrated he has authority over the grave, over death itself, by rising from the dead. And the night before he was put to death, At the Last Supper, he took bread and wine and made pronouncements about that, identifying that with his body and with his blood. And Paul comes along later and said, every time we remember that event, we look forward with expectation to his return in the flesh to this world to gather his own to himself. Let us pray. Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of life itself and the sealed promise of eternal life to all those that are yours. We pray for an extension of your kingdom in and through us, that we may grow in the faith, that we may be stronger proponents and witnesses to the faith, and that as the days grow, grow dark and perhaps dangerous and fretful, Spirits are all around us. Help us, Lord, to stand firm on the faith once delivered to the saints and preserve for us in your word. Help us to strengthen one another for the journey ahead. Help us to live as though we truly believed you are the resurrection and the life. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.